Welcome to PQ Doc on Call, a podcast dedicated to current and aspiring intensivists. I'm Pradeep Kamath, coming to you from Children's Healthcare of Atlanta, Emory University School of Medicine. And I'm Rahul Damania from Cleveland Clinic Children's Hospital. And we are two pediatric ICU physicians passionate about all things MedEd in the PICU. PICU Doc on Call focuses on interesting PICU cases and management in the acute care pediatric setting. So let's get into our episode. Welcome to our episode of a somnolent toddler. Here's the case presented by Rahul. A two-year-old male presents to the PICU after being found increasingly sleepy throughout the day. The toddler is otherwise previously healthy and was noted to be in his normal state of health the prior day. Mother dropped the toddler off to his grandma's home early this morning. Grandmother states that he was playing throughout the day and she noticed around lunchtime the toddler starting to stumble around and acting more sleepy. She states that this was around his nap time, so she did not feel it was too out of the ordinary. The toddler, one hour later, was still very sleepy and grandmother noticed that the toddler also had some shallow breathing. She called mother very concerned as she also found her purse open where she typically keeps her pills. The grandmother has a history of myocardial infarction and atrial fibrillation, as well as hypertension. She has prescribed a multitude of medications. Given the child's increased lethargy, the grandmother presented the patient to the emergency department. In the emergency department, the child is noted to be afebrile with a heart rate of 55 and respiratory rate of 18. His blood pressure is 78 over 40. On exam, he has minimal reactivity to his pupils. He has shallow breathing and laying still on the bed. A point of care glucose is 68. An acute resuscitation has begun as the patient then presents to the PICU. So Rahul, to summarize key elements from this case, this two-year-old has drowsiness, bradycardia, normal tension. Now, this is in a setting of being at grandma's home and having access to many medications from the grandma's purse. Given the hemodynamic findings and obtundation, this patient's presentation brings up the concern for some ingestion, most likely a beta blocker or clonidine. Now, this episode will be organized into the following parts. We'll first talk about beta blocker poisoning, and then we will also examine other medications that can potentially be toxic to a toddler, namely the one pill can kill phenomena. Now, there could be many medications in this grandmother's purse, and these can include TCAs, calcium channel blockers, opioids, oral anti-diabetic agents, digoxin, as well as clonidine and beta blockers, which Pradeep highlighted. Just to summarize, the presence of a grandparent is a risk factor for unintentional pediatric exposure to pharmaceuticals, commonly referred to as the granny syndrome. Now, in the literature, grandparents' medications account for 10 to 20% of unintentional pediatric intoxications in the United States. To kids, all of these pills look like candy, and that's why we want to focus on it today uh, for our episode. Rahul, let's start with a multiple choice question. All right. So an overdose of which of the following medications may mimic the presentation of metoprolol overdose? A, verapamil toxicity, B, ketamine toxicity, C, valium toxicity, or D, lithium toxicity? And Rahul, the correct answer is A, verapamil toxicity. Now, as we all know that verapamil is a non-dihydropyridine calcium channel blocker, it acts at the level of the SA and AV node, similar to metoprolol, which is a beta-1-specific antagonist. 
both cause bradycardia and AV nodal block. Valium, though, is a CNS depressant, can cause a cardiovascular depression as well. However, would have less changes on the conduction system compared to the non-dihydropyridine calcium channel blockers such as verapamil. So Rahul, as we're talking about beta blockers, what's the mechanism of toxicity with beta blockers? So beta blockers are competitive inhibitors at the beta adrenergic binding sites, and this results in decreased production of intracellular cyclic AMP with resultant blunting of multiple metabolic and cardiovascular effects of circulating catecholamines. They attenuate effect of adrenergic catecholamines on the heart. They also have decreased ionotropic and chronotropic response. Now, some drugs like propranolol can actually act as sodium channel blockers in addition to being a beta blocker, and this can result in arrhythmias as well as even seizures. Now, toxic doses of drugs like sotalol can result in potassium channel blockade, giving rise to prolonged QT and risk for torsades. Anti-alpha adrenergic activity of agents like carvedilol, labetalol can result in peripheral vasodilation and hypotension. Remember, these medications are going to be partial beta and alpha antagonists. In addition, beta adrenergic receptor antagonism inhibits both glycogenolysis and gluconeogenesis, which may result in hypoglycemia. And we saw that in our case as the patient had a borderline low serum glucose. Rahul, can you tell us about the pharmacokinetics of beta blockers? Absolutely. And this will kind of add to our mechanism discussion. Beta blockers exhibit intra-class pharmacokinetic variability with regards to absorption, bioavailability, hepatic first-pass metabolism, and lipid solubility, as well as protein binding. Drugs like propranolol are lipid-soluble with high volume of distribution and can cross the blood-brain barrier. Now, this is a contrast to something like atenolol or natalol, which are water-soluble and have low volume of distribution, thus they stay in the intravascular space. Onset of action for most immediate release agents is typically two to six hours. And this is going to be very important because when you think about time to peak in ingestions, the average amount of time is going to be this two to six hours. Now, all beta blockers, regardless of their design selectivity, can lose selectivity in cases of overdose. So you may have altered pharmacokinetics. So bradycardia, hypotension, and conduction delays are the hallmarks of acute beta blocker toxicity. Hypoglycemia and seizures are also seen in some cases. Now, risk factors for toxicity with beta blockers include young age, which is primarily unintentional in kids under six years of age or could be suicidal in teenagers, co-ingestion of other medications such as tricyclic antidepressants, calcium channel blockers and neuroleptic agents, extended release preparations and known cardiac disease. In many studies looking at beta blocker overdose, approximately 80% of the exposures were unintentional in pediatrics. Now, Pradeep, what would be the typical clinical presentation of a beta blocker overdose? Rahul, most of the patients we see are toddlers who have had unintentional exposure to the drug as seen in our case presentation. There is an adult who uses the prescribed medication and the child gets access to that medication. The child can present with depressed mental status, seizures, bradycardia, hypotension, and shock. Very rarely, a child with underlying airway hyperresponsiveness can present with bronchospasm. 
toxicity with beta blockers is less severe compared to calcium channel blocker ingestion and can be asymptomatic or present with bradycardia and drowsiness. Hypothermia, hypoglycemia, and seizures have been reported in children. Beta blockers that are not sustained release formulations are rapidly absorbed from the GI tract. The first critical signs of overdose can appear 20 minutes post-ingestion, but are more commonly observed within one to two hours. All clinically significant beta blocker overdoses, the symptoms should develop within six hours. So we've talked a lot about the pharmacology of beta blockers. And if you have a patient who presents with a suspected beta blocker ingestion, what would be your diagnostic approach? I think, Rahul, that's a great question. I think a good history from caregivers is essential. Exposure to beta blockers prescribed to a parent or grandparent can basically help you clinch the diagnosis. Typical labs that we send in any poisoning include a blood gas to assess for metabolic acidosis, serum lactate, a comprehensive metabolic panel to kind of look at things like hypokalemia or hypocalcemia, which can worsen arrhythmias, as well as to evaluate for hypoglycemia. EKG or a continuous EEG may be required in the comatose or intubated patient. Look for co-ingestions, use serum or urine comprehensive toxicological screening, and always do a beta-HCG test in teenage girls. So Rahul, what is the approach then to managing a patient with beta blocker overdose? I think patients who ingest beta blockers definitely need to be admitted to the PICU for close observation. We must also work collaboratively with their state poison control and contact them for reporting purposes, as well as to garner their management recommendations. Now, besides maintenance of patients' airway and breathing, the goal of therapy is to really restore perfusion to critical organ systems by focusing on increasing cardiac output and oxygen delivery. This may be accomplished by improving myocardial contractility, increasing heart rate, or a combination of both. So in the pre-hospital state, when you are talking to your transport team, as well as your ED physicians, it's going to be important for you to think about the role of activated charcoal. Now, activated charcoal is indicated in the first few hours, especially if the patient is not altered. But remember, always assess your patient's mental status prior to considering activated charcoal. The asymptomatic patient actually needs observation for at least six hours for immediate release medications. and. In the case of Sotolol, they may require longer monitoring, such as around 12 hours. Now, treatment beyond monitoring is not necessary if the only manifestation the patient has is asymptomatic bradycardia. But if you do have significant symptomatic bradycardia, we must intervene. So Rahul, let's say that the patient that comes to the PQ has severe bradycardia, because remember, nothing that is simple comes to the PQ. So how would you change your management framework then? Absolutely. For patient who is bradycardic and hypotensive, the first line is the judicious use of crystalloid boluses. Now, patients can develop pulmonary edema with excessive fluids, but this may be needed in the initial resuscitation period. Atropine may also be considered for these patients who present with bradycardia. Now, there are specific antidotes which I do want to highlight. The first one, glucagon. So how does this work? Glucagon stimulates adenyl cyclase via the glucagon receptor instead of the blocked beta-adrenergic receptor. Now, the effect is seen within minutes, 
And if no improvement is seen in 10 minutes, an additional dose of glucagon is less likely to be effective. The typical pediatric dose is 50 to 150 micrograms per kilo as an IV bolus. The second therapy which I want to highlight is insulin as well as glucose. Insulin increases both ionotropy and chronotropy. Regular insulin, which is dosed at 1 to 10 units per kilo per hour, is going to be the typical dosage range which you will use. Now, what you want to do is start the insulin at 1 unit per kilo per hour and titrate upwards every 30 to 40 minutes until hemodynamic improvement is seen. What you also want to do is add dextrose to counter the hypoglycemic effects of insulin. This is typically going to be in the form of 25% dextrose boluses or an infusion of D10 while the insulin drip is going. What we do need to note is that insulin will shift potassium intracellularly. So monitoring serum levels of potassium is going to be crucial. Clinical effects of insulin and glucose therapy in the setting of beta blocker toxicity is typically seen in 15 to 30 minutes. Now, to summarize, what we also can employ are the use of vasopressors. You want to think about using high-dose norepinephrine or epinephrine, especially in refractory cases. Now, there was one case series of 20 patients published in Annals of Emergency Medicine back in 2011 that reported no significant decrease in mean arterial pressure from baseline in patients receiving high-dose insulin euglycemic therapy in addition to vasopressors compared to vasopressors alone. The final therapy which we can employ is the use of lipid emulsion. Now, this is reserved for severe cases refractory to all other therapies. The mechanism here is a bit unknown, but may involve this concept of a lipid sink which basically pulls all lipid-soluble toxins out of the tissue and traps them in the vascular compartment for excretion. It also delivers free fatty acids to the heart for improved metabolic functioning. For children, a 20% lipid emulsion is used, and typically you'll start with a 1.5 milliliters per kilo bolus, and if the patient shows improvement, you can consider an infusion that is going to be around 0.5 mils per kilo per minute until hemodynamic recovery. I would really encourage you to visit our episode number four of the PICU.com call podcast entitled PICU Applications of Lipid Emulsion Therapy to learn about this therapy in a little bit more detail. Now, if all else fails, Pradeep, the patient may require venoarterial ECMO cannulation. Cardiac pacing may be effective in increasing the rate of myocardial contraction if pharmacological therapy fails. So Pradeep, this was a great case, and I do want to highlight other components or medications which may be found in grandmother's purse and the antidotes which are commonly employed in these cases of ingestion. Do you mind talking to us a little bit about clonidine? So grandma's purse may have clonidine patches or tablets, and which are typically used by the sleep or hypertension by the grandma. Most patients who ingest clonidine will present with somnolence along with bradycardia or hypotension. So how do we manage this? Now, first things first, always pay attention and maintain the airway, breathing, and make sure there's, uh, the hemodynamics are stable. Especially in a patient with marked central nervous system depression, 
we should consider trialing IV naloxone or Narcan at 0.1 milligram per kilo, maximum single dose of 2 milligrams. This may be repeated 1 to 2 minutes up to 10 milligram for a total dose. Now, please note that naloxone has been utilized to treat seriously poisoned patients with clonidine overdose with inconsistent results. Finally, in the symptomatic patient with clonidine overdose, it is important to note that there is no role for elimination via hemodialysis or CRRT. Another important point to remember is in a child who may have overdose with clonidine is to fully expose the child and make sure there are no adherent transdermal patches that need to be removed from the child's skin. The next ingestion that we're going to be talking about in grandmother's purse is diazepam. Now, diazepam is a benzodiazepine, and a single ingestion has actually a very good safety profile. The toddler typically presents with a range of neurological impairments such as altered mentation, slurred speech, ataxia, and mild respiratory depression. Co-ingestion of benzodiazepines with other agents can give rise to coma, severe respiratory depression, and hypotension. Now, what we should consider in these patients is activated charcoal, especially if they are going to present in the subacute period, as well as supportive care with attention to airway breathing and circulation. The antidote flumazenil can be used to reverse severe benzodiazepine toxicity. Another thing commonly found in grandma's purse are the ACE inhibitors like captopril and alepril, which block conversion of angiotensin 1 to angiotensin 2, thereby lowering arterial resistance to decrease the blood pressure. Mild toxicity may be produced with a single supratherapeutic dose. However, severe toxic effects and deaths are rare and are often actually attributed to co-ingestants. There are reports of children six years of age and younger who have ingested up to 8 mg per kilo of captopril or up to 2 mg per kilo of enalapril or lisinopril and have remained asymptomatic. Primary toxic effect of ACE inhibitor ingestion is basically hypotension. Asymptomatic patients should be observed for at least four hours post-ingestion with frequent monitoring of vital signs. Hyperkalemia and hyponatremia may be seen due to aldosterone blocking effect of the ACE inhibitors. Now, symptomatic or hypotensive patients should be admitted for at least 24 hours post-ingestion or until symptoms have completely resolved. Patients should be given IV fluids to maintain a satisfactory blood pressure and a good urine output. Oral activated charcoal may be given to patients who have ingested a large dose, and that should be usually within the first one to two hours post-ingestion. Although the role of naloxone in the setting of ACE inhibitor overdose remains unclear, it may be considered, especially in cases of severe hypotension, where fluid overload is a concern. The exact mechanism of how naloxone helps in ACE inhibitor toxicity remains unknown. The next agent we'll talk about is the calcium channel blockers. Now, we have an episode dedicated to this, but I want to summarize some salient points. What we want to do is watch for hypotension and bradycardia, conduction defects, and even cardiovascular collapse. Patients may be asymptomatic initially. Hyperglycemia can be seen in these patients compared to the hypoglycemia, which we saw in beta blocker overdose. The administration of IV calcium, glucagon, catecholamines, and high-dose insulin therapy are the mainstays of treatment for calcium channel blocker overdose. There is also a role for IV lipid emulsion, and methylene blue has been tried in cases of amlodipine toxicity. 
severe cases of calcium channel blocker overdose may require VA ECMO. The other thing that grandma's purses may have is the oral anti-diabetic agents, typically the sulfonylureas. Binding of sulfonylurea to the sulfonylurea receptor 1, SUR1, subunit closes the ATP-dependent potassium channel, leading to insulin secretion. This can lower blood sugar to a dangerous level, resulting in confusion, irritability, lethargy, tachypnea, tachycardia, sweating, hypothermia, seizures, altered mental status, coma, and even death. Patient requires observation for at least 24 hours or longer if it's an extended release preparation of a sulfonylurea. We can use activated charcoal within one to two hours if patient is not altered. Correct hypoglycemia with IV dextrose. Octreotide IV infusion has been used to inhibit the release of insulin in some severe cases. The next topic we will be talking about is tricyclic antidepressants. Now, they are rarely used due to the wide availability of SSRIs. Now, overdose can cause cardiac arrhythmias due to the sodium channel blockade, hypotension due to the TCA's peripheral alpha-adrenergic blockade, and cardiac arrest as well as seizures and coma. Among patients who are asymptomatic more than six hours after ingestion, symptoms are unlikely to develop. However, delayed toxic effects may occur, particularly if there are co-ingestions that can delay gastrointestinal motility. Now, the management includes basic tenants of pediatric critical care related to airway breathing and circulation and watching for any anticholinergic toxicity. These patients can present with the three Cs, coma, convulsions, and cardiotoxicity. We can also use activated charcoal, similar to many of the other toxidromes we've talked about. If the QRS is prolonged greater than 100 milliseconds, or if there's hemodynamic instability, sodium bicarbonate bolus followed by a continuous infusion may be required. Use of fluids for hypotension, similar to calcium channel blocker overdose, is mainstay for therapy, and you may want to consider epinephrine or norepinephrine as your pressors in these scenarios. These patients may also have convulsions or seizures, so use of benzodiazepines and antiepileptics may be indicated. Now, if hemodynamic instability persists despite all of the therapies which we just covered, we may need to consider lipid emulsion therapy. It's important to note that for patients with prolonged QT in the setting of TCA overdose, you want to replace your electrolytes, including using mag sulfate. Opioids and other pain meds such as acetaminophen, which is Tylenol, NSAIDs, aspirin, or even topical products containing methyl salicylate and camphor are frequently found in grandma's purse. Treatment is supportive with close attention to airway, breathing, and hemodynamics. Naloxone can be used for opioid ingestion. Listeners can get more details about opioid poisoning from our episode number 61. Methyl salicylate can cause nausea, vomiting, hyperthermia, blood sugar abnormalities, weakness, ringing in the ears, fast breathing, seizures, coma, and even death. Half a teaspoon of methyl salicylate can be fatal in a toddler. N-acetylcysteine or mucomis can be used as an antidote to acetaminophen toxicity. Salicylate toxicity requires alkalinization of urine as well as may require hemodialysis depending on the level or the presence of neurologic symptoms. The next agent that we are going to be covering in grandma's purse is digoxin toxicity. 
Now, fortunately, digoxin use has declined since the 1990s. So the incidence of toxicity has also declined. Digoxin increases intracellular calcium and myocardial cells indirectly by inhibiting the sodium-potassium pump in the cell membrane. Now, children can present with nonspecific GI symptoms like vomiting and diarrhea, but they can also present with really severe symptoms like lethargy and coma and also have cardiovascular effects such as sinus bradycardia, AV block, as well as ventricular ectopy. VTAC and AFib can occur with severe toxicity. Remember that digoxin is going to inhibit the sodium-potassium ATPase. So the electrolyte abnormality you will get is hyperkalemia. And understanding the management of hyperkalemia, as we've discussed in prior episodes, is going to be key, especially when you're dealing with digoxin uh, toxicity. Besides supportive care, there are DIG-specific antibody fragments that are used, and this kind of complexes with the digoxin and then is excreted in the urine. Another toxin found in grandma's purse are the alcohols, perfumes, hand sanitizers, which were used extensively during the pandemic, and mouthwashes containing concentrated alcohol. Acute alcohol poisoning can result in vomiting, seizures, hypoglycemia, hypothermia, respiratory insufficiency, and unconsciousness. Treatment is mainly supportive. The final agent we will be talking about is nicotine. Now, exposure to liquid nicotine that is used to refill e-cigarettes or nicotine gum in a small child can actually be deadly. With an estimated median lethal dose between 1 and 13 milligrams per kilo of body weight, one teaspoon, which is 5 mLs, of a 1.8% nicotine solution could be lethal to a 90-kilogram person. Low-dose exposure can result in tachycardia, vomiting, as well as truncal ataxia, and these patients can even have seizures. With a higher dose of nicotine, we can see cholinergic toxicity. These children may have extreme secretions and GI disturbances. The highest level of poisoning can result in neuromuscular blockade, respiratory failure, and even death. Treatment is supportive, although atropine can be used to combat the cholinergic activity. Before we get into the summary of our episode for today, we want to stress the importance of having a collaborative approach in the management of these ingestions. Notify your state poison control, consult with toxicology colleagues, coordinating care with PQ team members, including the pharmacists, as well as having a proactive communication with the ECMO primers are tenants of high-quality care. So Rahul, why don't we go ahead and summarize the episode from today? Absolutely. So most patients who develop toxicity from beta blocker overdose do so within two hours of ingestion and virtually all do so within six hours. Bradycardia and hypotension are the most common effects. Cardiogenic shock and ventricular dysarrhythmias can occur with severe overdose and hypoglycemia is seen more often in children. The second summary point today that I want to make is that grandma's purse can be a potpourri of medications which can be very toxic to a toddler resulting in the one pill can kill phenomena. In this episode, we have described a few of the medications individually, but many times this may not be the case and the toddler may have ingested more than one type of a medication, thus further complicating the diagnosis as well as the management. Sticking to good supportive care, consultation with state poison control, as well as consulting with your toxicologist is helpful in many of these cases. As pediatric intensivists, we are pediatricians at heart, and our job is to educate parents and grandparents to keep children safe. Keep purses out of reach of small children, 
keep medications in child-resistant containers, and do not fill these in plastic bags or pill containers that are not secured. Keep poison control phone numbers handy, and in the event a child may have swallowed a pill, do not wait for symptoms. Contact help. This concludes our episode on the toddler in the grandma's purse. We hope you found value in our short case-based podcast. We welcome you to share your feedback, subscribe, and place a review on our podcast. Please visit our website, pqdoconcall.org, which showcases our episodes as well as our Doc on Call management cards. PQ Doc on Call is hosted by me, Pradeep Kumar, and my co-host, Dr. Rahul Dimania. Please stay tuned for our next episode. Thank you. Thank you.